And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. A pastor began his Sunday sermon by saying, I'd like to make three points today. First, there are millions of people around the world who are dying and going to hell. Second, most of us sitting here don't give a damn about that. Then there was a long pause. And he continued, my third point is that you are more concerned that I, your pastor, just said the word damn than you are about the millions going to hell. Well, it's easy to get our priorities all mixed up where we treat as major that which is minor, where we treat what is minor um, as, as that is, which is really crucial. And what we're talking about today is something very crucial. So let's just go to the Lord for a quick word of prayer. Father, I pray that you would prepare our hearts even now. Father, uh, just to hear this truth that uh, Jesus clearly proclaims here and which we, uh, Father, uh, need to learn from. And Father, that the, the idea is, yes, uh, this world is, is lost and dying and a good majority of it is going to hell. And Father, we, seemed, we seem much of the time to be unconcerned about that. I pray that you would give us your eyes, give us your heart for the lost. Uh, Father, help us to see that in this passage this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, one day Hudson Taylor, uh, a missionary to China, was traveling on a Chinese boat and he was going from Shanghai to Ningpo and he had been witnessing to a man named Peter who uh, kind of rejected the gospel but it seemed as if he was under uh, deep conviction. And in the course of events on this trip, Peter fell overboard, but no one made any effort to save him. So Taylor, he jumps up, he goes to the mast, he lets down the sail, he jumps in trying to save his friend and find him. But no one on board joined Taylor in this frantic search for his friend. Now Taylor saw a fishing boat nearby and yelled for them to help, but they wouldn't do anything without money. So after bartering every penny that Taylor had, they said, okay, we'll help. So they dropped their nets and jumped into the search. In less than a minute of dragging their net, they found Peter, but it was too late. He was dead. They were all too busy fishing to care about saving a drowning man. Now, we can easily condemn the selfish indifference of these fishermen, but by indicting them, we may be condemning ourselves. Are we too busy with our jobs, with our other activities to take time to rescue those who are perishing without Christ? Now, I realize that this analogy breaks down. We've got to be tactful and wait for the right opening before we talk to a person about spiritual things. But shouldn't we do all that we can to get this crucial message to them? Do we have a proper sense of urgency about spiritual matters um, that we ought to have? Or could it be that we really don't give a darn? Our record, um, our text records something that's not found in any of the other Gospels. Uh, Jesus has appointed 70 others, this is besides the 12, and sent them ahead of him to proclaim the Gospel in the city where he is going to come. They're kind of preparing the way. And Jesus sends these workers out with the instructions and warnings that are kind of similar to those that he gave to the 12 back in chapter 9. Now, some of those instructions, they were unique to these men and to this mission. Uh, 
But many of the principles and the overall thrust of the passage do apply to us. The overall, overall thrust is this. The gospel is crucial because people will be judged eternally on the basis of their response to it. Now, four words come to the surface of this passage. Prayer, mission, message, and urgency. So first, let's look at prayer. Do you pray for the harvest? Jesus was saying to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. This is, this is a mystery. God is the sovereign Lord of the harvest, and yet he limits himself, as it were, by our prayers for more laborers for his harvest. Now, when you think about the Lord's words there in verse 2, you have to ask yourself, do I pray for the harvest? Did I pray for the harvest this past week? Do I pray for his work uh, around the world? Do I pray for his work here in Crawfordville? Do I ask him to raise up and send out workers into his harvest? Let's be honest. We all pray about things that matter most to us. I pray often for my children and my wife because they matter to me. Uh, if I get sick, I pray for my health because it matters to me. If any of us are in a financial difficulty or need a job, we pray earnestly for those things because they matter to us. But the important question is, does the Lord's harvest matter enough to me to, to motivate me to pray for it? In the Lord's Prayer, what comes first? Prayer for the glory of God, that the Father's name would be hallowed or revered. Now, for that to happen, we've got to pray next for his kingdom, and that it would come and that his will would be done in earth as it is in heaven. Now, it's only when people submit themselves daily to God as king to seek to do his will that he is hallowed, that he is glorified here on this earth. So Jesus there shows us that the priority in prayer should be for the Father's glory and for his kingdom. Only after that does he instruct us to pray for our personal needs, such as our daily bread, for forgiveness, for victory over sin, those types of things. But the Lord's instructions in this well-known prayer is rather clear. If we're not praying first and foremost for God's glory to be increased through the spreading of his kingdom, then guess what? We're not praying rightly. So to be obedient, we pray, Lord, send out workers into your harvest. Now, we're thinking, of course, of young people who will dedicate themselves to world missions and of young men who will feel called to the pastorate. It is true that there is always a need for more godly missionaries and pastors. It's also true that a person shouldn't go into those areas of service without a distinct call from God. And not everyone has such a calling. Only some should devote themselves full-time to the work of ministry. But there is another sense in which every believer is to be a worker in God's harvest field. Every believer is given a spiritual gift from God and is told to use it for his kingdom. Every believer is to be a witness of Jesus Christ to others in his or her sphere of influence, wherever that may be. Every believer is called to be a good steward of the material resources that God has entrusted to him so that we use our money, that we use our possessions to further his cause. 
So you can't pray for workers very long before the Lord seems to just reach over and tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, what about you? I want you to work in my harvest. That leads to the second word, mission. Do you labor in the harvest field? These men went, went out with a sense of mission. Now granted, it was a special mission and not everybody is commissioned by God to do what they did. But if we're all commanded to seek first God's righteousness and his kingdom, it's hard to escape the fact that we all should have a sense of mission from God. Now, we may fulfill that mission in, in very different ways according to our various gifts, according to our circumstances, our situations. But whatever we do for the Lord, we ought to have the seriousness of purpose that comes from realizing that we have a job to do and in the end, we will be held accountable before the Lord of the harvest as to what we did about what he told us to do. Now, while the Lord's instructions to these men were unique for this mission, the overall impression that you get is that they were to be focused on their task and not let anything get in the way of the mission. Jesus warns them right off the bat that he is sending them out as sheep in the midst of wolves. There is or there will be opposition and danger and they're going to be helpless by themselves to do anything about it. They have to depend on God for protection. Jesus tells them in verse 4, carry no purse, no bag, no shoes, presumably meaning an extra pair of sandals. They were to travel light and trust God for the provisions that they needed. They shouldn't get distracted by belongings uh, that they were carrying with them, but they should stay focused on their mission. It says they were to greet no one in the way. Does this mean they were to be rude and obnoxious and unfriendly? No. Uh, they were not to get distracted with lengthy chit-chat that didn't contribute to their mission. The disciples are not to be distracted from their mission by moving from house to house, searching for better food, for better, better lodging. No. Rather, if someone is willing to house them and to feed them, and this person is sympathetic to the mission, they should stay there and get on with the work. They should focus on the mission. Now, while the specific instructions don't apply to us, the main point does. We're not to, be, we're not to just dabble in the things of God. We have to stay focused on our mission. Jesus commands every believer to seek his uh, kingdom and righteousness first. A man was fishing without very much success and when he noticed a woman nearby who was reeling in just one after another and finally frustrated, he asked the woman her secret. Well, are you fishing for supper or for sport, she asked. Well, I'm fishing for sport, he answered. Well, there's your problem, the woman stated. I'm fishing for supper. We aren't to ask the Lord to send out hobbyists into his harvest. What do we pray for? We pray for workers. Workers are intent on the job because they are working for their supper. If we care about the things that God cares about, we will entreat him. We will ask him to send out workers into his harvest field. Now, we can't sincerely pray for workers if we're not one of them. So we should begin to pray, Lord, what is my mission? What do you want me to do to further your cause? And once you figure that out, this, these verses give us at least two warnings here. A, don't give up because of opposition or rejection. No, expect it. Sheep wandering in the midst of a wolf pack, they should not expect to have a jolly good time. 
That's not the way it works. Most of the opposition that Jesus and his disciples received, they encountered from the religious community. Unless you try to shut down an abortion clinic or maybe an adult store of some, of some type, outsiders really don't care what you do. The main opposition you face come from those in the church. Be prepared. If you get involved in serving the Lord, you will be criticized and mostly by those in the church. And then B, don't get distracted by social contacts or material possessions. Rather, stay focused on your mission. Now, just as these workers could easily have been distracted by engaging in meaningless chit-chat with those who they met along the way, we can get distracted by social contacts that are, are extraneous to our mission. We need to stay focused on our purpose. Jesus was known as the friend of sinners because he went to their social gatherings. But he never went just to socialize. He always went with a purpose. What was that purpose? To seek and to save the lost. If you go to social gatherings without a sense of purpose, you're going to get sucked into the world's meaningless ways and you'll cease to be a worker in the harvest. The harvest worker's focus is always, where is this person at spiritually? And how can I be a part of bringing him or her to the Lord? Now also, we need to be careful not to get distracted by material possessions. While God graciously uh, supplies all things to enjoy, that's not what we fix our hope on. The Bible calls them the uncertainty of riches. No, we put our hope in God. We're to be rich in good works, storing up the treasure of a good foundation in the future so that we may take hold of that which is life indeed. So we've got prayer, we've got missions. The third is message. Do you proclaim the kingdom of God by your life and your lips? Now these harvest workers were to heal the sick and to say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. If their message was rejected, uh, they were still to proclaim as they left the town, be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near. So by, by their lives in healing the sick and by their lips, they were to proclaim the message of God's kingdom. Now clearly, that kingdom had come upon these people where they, whether they accepted it or rejected it, didn't matter, it had happened. Now I argue that the, the healing ministry here was unique and that these men, they were given power to heal everyone indiscriminately as a sign of the coming of the kingdom age in Jesus. No one in our day is given that kind of gift since its purpose was unique. But even so, we are to care for the whole person. Uh, we, we can't promise God's miraculous healing on every person, but we can pray that God will be merciful in healing those who need it. But their greatest need is to come into submission to God as Lord and King. Now, the kingdom of God is that realm in which He rules. By, saving, uh, by saying that the kingdom had come near, Jesus wasn't saying that there was no further fulfillment in the future. The day is still coming when Jesus will return. He will reign over Israel and all the nations on the earth in accordance with all that the Old Testament prophets had predicted. But the kingdom in its initial phase had arrived in the person of Jesus and the message was that the people must submit their lives to him as king. Now the message of the kingdom of God, it kind of draws a line in the sand. It announces peace to those who submit to Jesus as king 
but terrible judgment to those who refuse to submit. When the workers enter, entered a home, they were first to announce peace to it. Now, these aren't just nice words. They were an actual announcement of God's blessing if the people accepted and submitted to the message of God's kingdom. If the people wouldn't accept the message, the pronouncement of peace would return to the worker and it would be replaced with a terrible warning of certain judgment that was to come. Now, as of 2017, uh, only 58% of adults in America believe in hell. Well, at the same time, 70% of Christians, adults in America, believe in hell. My question is, what do the other 30 believe? Jesus didn't speak about the future judgment um, speculatively. No, he spoke about it with authority. He makes it clear that people will be judged according to the degree of, of light that they have received and rejected. <laughs> There will be degrees of punishment in hell. It's going to be worse for those who had heard plenty of Christ and rejected him. It's going to be worse for them than those uh, such as Sodom and Tyre and Sidon. They lacked a clear witness. Now, verse 13 is, is kind of mind-boggling. Uh, Jesus declares that he knows who those or excuse me, he knows how those who never heard about Jesus would have responded if they have heard. Theologians call it middle knowledge. Uh, it's, it's a way of saying that God in his omniscience, he doesn't know just the actualities, he knows all of the contingencies. So he knows what would have happened if they had heard. Well, yet even though these cities would have repented if they had heard, they never did hear and they will be judged for their wickedness and for their unbelief. But the real warning that we've got to take, to take to heart is this. These cities that Jesus warns of terrible judgment to come, they were religious cities. They were familiar with Jesus' message and miracles. One of them, Capernaum, was his home base. They knew him better than anybody. They rejected him. Sodom, Tyre, and Sidon, on the other hand, they were pagan Gentile cities. Yet their judgment is going to be less. The warning here is that those who sit in church and yet remain unmoved by the offer of peace with God through Christ, those who are familiar with the spiritual things but who refuse to submit to Jesus as Lord, these religious people will be judged far more harshly than the raw pagans who are simply ignorant of the gospel. Now, people may say that if they saw a miracle or if they heard Jesus speak uh, in person that they would believe. Not so. These towns heard Jesus, they saw his miracles, but they hardened themselves against him. They wouldn't submit to him as king. Now, to hear Jesus as messengers, according to Jesus, is to hear him. But to reject his messengers is also to reject him. Jesus here predicts Capernaum's demise. They thought highly of themselves, right? Exalted to heaven. But Jesus thought otherwise. And his word stands. The city of Capernaum is now an uninhabited heap of ruins. The same that happened there could easily happen in America our nation has, been, has had great light since our founding and even before. 
But even many of those who profess Christ show by their disobedient and self-centered lives that they're not subject to his lordship. It's a terrible thing for those with such great knowledge to reject the truth of the gospel. So our text shouts out these words to us. Prayer, do we pray for the harvest? Mission, do you labor in the harvest field? And message, do you proclaim with life and lips the kingdom of God? And finally, number four, urgency. Do you live and bear witness in light of eternity? Now, again, I realize that we've got to be sensitive to people. We can't just go around grabbing them by the collar and shaking them and saying, hey, you're going to hell. That's not going to go over very well. But even so, do we have a sense of urgency for our mission? That day in verse 12, that's the day of judgment. And guess what? It is coming soon. Our message is not try Jesus and you'll feel better and have a happier life. That's not the gospel. We have to sensitively but plainly warn people that they are sinners who face God's certain judgment. But they can know peace with God if they will trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And time is short and we have to keep eternity constantly in our sight. During the 1981 Byron Nelson Golf Tournament in Dallas, a massive tree limb broke off and fell, hit a spectator and killed him on the spot. It happened near the the third hole where Charles Cootie was playing at the time. And after the round, he was interviewed on the radio about it. And he said, after running over there and seeing the accident, I tried to play golf. Yet I had no desire to play after that. All of a sudden, those three-foot putts didn't seem to matter anymore. The certainty and the suddenness of death That should instill a sense of urgency in us who know what Jesus taught about the judgment to come. We should pray for openings with lost people. We should pray that God's people would be working in the harvest with a sense of mission. We should uh, clearly proclaim the message that Jesus is Lord and King and that people must accept his offer of peace now or face terrible consequences later. Well, a few years ago, this man was skydiving and he jumped out of the plane. It was around 3,000 feet and his, his um, I start to say propeller. No, you don't want a propeller when you're jumping out. His parachute malfunctioned. And uh, he, like I said, he had to fall about 3,000 feet. And in those circumstances, uh, it took him over a minute before he reached the ground. And in those circumstances, that's a lot of time to think. Now, what do you suppose he thought about as he sped towards the ground? I'm not sure, but somehow he miraculously survived. If that experience didn't make him think soberly about eternity, nothing will. People all around us are plummeting towards eternity without a parachute. And Jesus Christ is the only parachute for a safe landing. Now, if you know that fact, then pray for the harvest and for more workers. Go with a sense of mission to labor in the harvest field. Live and speak a message or the message in a way that honors Jesus Christ as Lord and King. And it shows lost people his offer of peace. But don't compromise the urgent warning. 
that to refuse that offer means certain judgment. In light of eternity, the gospel is the crucial, crucial message. And we are the messengers. That's our job. Let's pray. Father, it's a, it's a high calling uh, to be uh, a child of yours. Uh, Father, you didn't just save us for our own benefit. Lord, there are millions uh, around the world. There are thousands in our county. There are hundreds in our neighborhoods that do not know you. They do not know your son, Jesus Christ. And so, God, you leave us on this earth to be a witness, to be a testimony, to be a mouthpiece that simply proclaims the goodness of your grace through your son, Jesus Christ. God, I pray that you would prick our hearts this morning. Uh, convict us. And Lord, give us the courage, the energy, everything we need, Father, to become the witness that we should so that people can know your son, Jesus. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, CrawfordvilleFBC.com.